John is writing, the apostle of the Lord Jesus, and he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In case you didn't know it, but I think most of you do, that's our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray to the Father in his name. Would you bow with me, please? Father, oh, it's with joy that we enter into your presence in this time. Thank you for the sweet songs of faith and your word. And now as we look into your word, would you look into our hearts? Clean up what what needs to be cleaned up. Refashion what needs to be refashioned. Shape us. Make us a people fit to bear the name of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The title of today's message is the book of Revelation. This is part two. Those of you who were here last week will remember we began with some preliminaries. We got through eight of them. You were all very patient knowing that preliminaries are the thing you do before you do the thing that you want to do. So you were very patient with eight preliminaries. We got started in number nine, and then that nasty old clock just got in the way, and we had to leave the rest of number nine for today. But before we get back to number nine, I have a quiz for you. So take out a blank sheet of paper, grab your pen, put your name on the top of the page. All right, don't really do that, but just because just I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this. What one word did we say last week? What one word in the book of Revelation is repeated again and again and again and again and again. In fact, it's repeated 34 times, 17 of them in chapter 4. What one word is it? That's thrown. Bless you. You all passed. Some of you did anyway. It's thrown, 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 thrown. And then what phrase follows that up? And the phrase is used 29 times, and it's a phrase kind of uttered in the presence of the throne. It is the phrase, yes, it was given or it's given unto them. So, so there's the book of Revelation. There's what's going on. There's a throne and from the throne it is given. There's a throne and from the throne it is given. So it's throne, it was given. Thro- meaning God is sovereign and everything that's happening on the planet, persecutions of the church included, is all under the sovereignty of God. It's only happening because God gave them permission, because God gave them ability, because God gave them opportunity, because God gave them talent to do the things that they're doing. So don't forget, throne and it was given. We're going to see those again before we're finished the book of Revelation. So I want to finish up the last preliminary, and here it is. I'll put it up for you. The question is, is it symbolism, it, the book of Revelation? Is it symbolism or exact correspondence? So like, for example, in in chapter 5, there's a beast, and the beast has seven heads, picture that, and ten horns, picture that. 
So is, is that to be understood as exactly corresponding to a beast that will be seen on the planet someday? It will have, it will have seven heads, it will have ten horns, or is it symbolism that points to something else? That's our question. And to answer that, we noted that there are four phrases, I'll put this up, there are four phrases used in Daniel chapter 2 and Revelation 1.1, the first verse, picks out four phrases from places in Daniel chapter 2, and John plugs those right into us, into his text, indicating to us that he is actually using symbolism like Daniel did, that he's doing the Daniel thing. He's giving us a cue here. He's saying, you know what Daniel did? That's what I'm doing now. And the four phrases are, and we saw this, they are the revelation, to show, must soon take place, and he made it known. Those four phrases, John lifts from Daniel chapter two, various places throughout the chapter, and thus signifies to us, as Daniel did symbolism, so he is now doing symbolism. Because here's what Daniel does in chapter 2. He says, I saw in a vision this great statue, and it had a head of gold and then silver and then uh, bronze and then, I'm missing one, and then iron and then feet partly of iron and clay. And, and what does it mean? Does it mean there's a one-to-one correspondence and someday there will be such a thing, we'll all see it on the earth? Or does it mean that teaches us something else? Well, fortunately, at the end of chapter 2, Daniel gives us the interpretation of the thing he saw. And he says, here's what it means. There are four kingdoms that shall arise, and here's something special that will happen to the fourth. So John says, you know what happened in Daniel? There was symbolism. There was this statue with four parts and the last parts divided into two parts and that symbolized four kingdoms that were on the earth. So John says, I'm doing that thing. So when you read about a beast later in my book, when you read about a strange creature later in my book, when you read about something odd, something extraordinary happening later in my book, remember I gave you a clue in chapter one, verse one, we're doing the Daniel thing. And you're supposed to look at the thing and not say, all right, so there's going to be an exact one-to-one correspondence here. No, you're supposed to look at the thing and say, hmm, I wonder what that signifies. I wonder what that means. So we saw that in those four phrases. But it's not only the phrases that John uses to clue us into what he's doing. It's two of the very terms. Let me put this up. Two terms used by Daniel and John indicate symbolism. And here's the first of them. It is the term apocalypse, which is the the, the Greek word for our English translation, the revelation. The name of the book is literally the apocalypse. And man, it is an an apocalypse, and it's about an apocalypse. But, But that phrase is used by Daniel. Rather, that word is used by Daniel, and that word is used by John. And when John uses the word, it's the first word in his book in the Greek, apocalypse, or apocalypsis, I think. The first word he uses is that word. He's signifying something to us. He's saying, I am now in the apocalyptic genre that all you Hebrew people know about from your Old Testament, especially from Daniel and Ezekiel. So I'm doing what they did. I'm I'm in in the apocalyptic genre. And if you go look at Daniel and Ezekiel, what do they both do? They both use symbolism to indicate other things. That's what the apocalyptic genre does, and the book of Revelation draws very heavily from Daniel and Ezekiel and many other places throughout the Old Testament. But it's not just the word apocalypse, it's also the word, and here I gave you like a transliteration of the Greek word, simino, which means, I pulled off my lexicon, 
Looked it up, and here's what it, what it means. It means to show by signs or to use symbolic communication. Daniel uses that word and says, I'm simonoing. He has the Hebrew equivalent, but the Greek version of the Old Testament has that word. And John picks up that word and says, I'm doing the same thing Daniel did. I'm communicating by signs. I'm giving you symbolic communication. What I'm doing is simino. Let's see where Daniel uses it. Daniel 2.45. Here's the reference magically appearing on your screen. A great God has made known. That's the word. Has made known by signs. A great God has made known by that statue by that sign, by that symbolic thing, to the king, what shall be after this? Daniel uses the word, and he's talking about these. In chapter 2, he's talking about the statue. In chapter 7, he's talking about four beasts. And then he tells us they are symbolic. They indicate four kings and four kingdoms. John lifts that word, and in Revelation 1.1, he writes this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant the things that must soon take place. Here's the word Simarno. He made it known. That's one word in the Greek. There's our word. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, Revelation 1.1. So what's John doing? John is giving us a clear signal. You know the thing that's the apocalyptic genre? You know the, the word that, that Daniel used, indicating things by symbolism and by sides? Yes, you're to understand from my first verse and my first word even, that's what we have here in the book that I'm writing to you. So John is telling us that when he talks about, say, beasts, he's doing the same as Daniel did in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. He's actually talking about kings and kingdoms and world powers. So in the first verse... We are given four phrases, and within those phrases, two terms that link us very deeply into Daniel, Ezekiel, and other Old Testament prophetic genre portions of Scripture. Verse 1 teaches us to expect communication by symbolism, not by exact correspondence. Okay. All right. Enough preliminaries. Who's ready to go into the book? Oh, that sounded pretty good. All right. I'll take that. And it's the early service, and you all sound awake. So we're going into the first three chapters where we have Jesus moving among the churches. And guess how I'm going to start moving into the book with you now? I have what I'll call four key facts. That's another term for more preliminaries. Four key facts about the seven churches of Asia Minor. So before we jump into the churches, there's four things I want you to know about them. Keep them in mind. When we finish the churches, I have a list of things that reflect back on what we have seen. Here's the thing, number one, I want you to know about the seven churches. One, they represent all churches in every era. They're representative churches you'll find in any place in church history. There's a church like the Ephesian. There's a church like the Laodicean. There's a church like Smyrna. You'll find them in every era of church history. Now, I think everybody agrees with that, but some people go beyond that and say, well, actually, the first church is representative of the first 350 years of church history, and the second church, that's what the church was basically like in this next time period and the next time period. And if you Google this, seven churches of Revelation, you're going to get a whole lot of charts and diagrams saying the first church was this many years, second church is that many years, third church is that many years. Problem is, historians tell us they really can't find any rational correspondence between what the church was, the first one, and what what that first time period is like. Fact of the matter is, what John is telling us is, you'll find all of these at any time. You'll find churches like these at any time. They're representative of every time period. All of them are. 
And we know that for a couple reasons. One, all seven of them were there. It wasn't like you only had church number one then. Now you had one and two and three and four and five and seven. You had the whole, the whole thing. You had them all there. And furthermore, the number seven is one of John's favorite numbers. You know that, don't you? And seven is the number of completion, the number of perfectness. Like there were many more than seven churches around. He could have had nine or 12 or 27, but he picked seven saying, I'm giving you a perfect representation of what you'll find churches to be like at any time in church history. It's his perfect number, by the way, for future reference, as opposed to the number Number six, which means eh, didn't quite make the cut. Six, 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 incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. Six, 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 not too good, not too good, not too good. Short of the mark, short of the mark, short of the mark. But seven means here's the perfect number. I could have picked 23 churches. There were that many on the planet. I'm giving you seven. They're representative of what you'll find throughout the era. Furthermore, each of the individual seven letters to seven churches ends with the phrase, Hear, if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is said in the first one is said to the churches. What's in the second one? To the churches. What's in the third one? To the churches. So that all the churches will read about church number one and say, oh man, we better look at ourselves. Are we like that? And all the churches will look at number two. We better look at that one. And man, are we like that? So we, Cornerstone people, ought to look at each of these seven churches and say, oh Lord God of heaven and earth, speak to us. Oh, head of the church, speak to us and reveal to us. If, if we have some of these problems, show it to us. Our eyes are open to you, Lord. And if, if, and if we deserve some of the blessings, then help us to recognize how blessed we are. But these seven represent all churches in every era. So that's your first key fact. It's not a preliminary. It's a key fact, all right? Here's a second key fact you need to know about them. They're all persecuted. Every one of them. They're persecuted. And in that, some witness boldly. They stand with Christ. They say, we believe the truth of the word of God. We believe the idols are wrong. We believe Caesar is not God. We will not say the things they want us to say. We will not fit in and get along to go along. Go along to get along. There it is. No, no. Some witness boldly and publicly to Christian truth, truth and ethics while others compromise. Others are like, oh, uh, you can go to the idol temple because you know it doesn't really mean anything. Oh, uh, you, can, you can say, yes, yeah, Caesar's garden, because uh, you know it's not really true and you don't really mean it. So just, you know, fit in, be a team player, go along, don't cause trouble, don't make waves. No, some churches compromised, others witnessed boldly and publicly to Christian truth. But a key here is they're all persecuted. And the two things that they're mainly persecuted for are, I just mentioned them, one is they were demanded, it was demanded that they participate in emperor worship. The cult of the emperor was was intense at this time. It was under Diocletian, the Roman governor, and, and you had to. You couldn't live life without somewhere affirming. You couldn't go to work and work parties and work events without affirming Caesar is God. It was that. And then it was other idols of the peoples of that era, just as we have idols in our area era. And if you didn't Offer something to the idols, you're not going to be in the trade guild. And if you're not in the trade guild, you don't have a job. If you don't have a job, you and your family are up the creek. So this was the problem they were facing. Throughout the book, they were persecuted. Those were the two big things. Say Caesar is God. 
offer some incense to an idol to keep your job and stay in the trade guild. And Jesus is drawing the line and saying, some of them compromised and found ways to rationalize it. And some of them refused and they suffered fiercely because of it. So they were persecuted, I want you to know that. Here's the third key fact about them. Their earthly experience is caused, oh, this is so cool. It's caused and explained in the rest of the book. Now this is crucial, you gotta get this. You must understand this. Here's the question, let's ask this question. Why are we introduced to the Son of Man in chapter one and then we get to three, the seven churches in chapters two and three? What are they in there for? They were seven churches of Asia Minor, first century. And then we jump from there, chapters four and five are up in heaven and from there on the book goes crazy and all this extraordinary stuff happens. Why, why do we have that composition? Why that order? Why do you get... Here's who Jesus is. Here are seven churches from the first century. And here's, whoa, all this other crazy stuff. What's the connection between those seven churches and all of that? And here's what you need to understand, and it'll really open up the book for you. All of that is telling us that's what's going on over and above and under and beside and around and through those seven churches and all churches in all of church history. Do you follow me? So the rest of the book is saying, the, the first couple chapters say, let's look at them on earth. Here's what they look like. Here are their strengths. Here's their weaknesses. Here's what they're doing right. Here's what they're doing wrong. Now, let's zoom out. It's kind of like it reminded me of, I don't know if this is a good illustration or not. It reminded me of, would you believe it was 19 years ago? The Matrix. Matrix number one. That's how old you are. That came out 19 years ago. And what happens in that? So there's, there's Neo, and he's living in the simulation. But Morpheus offers him the blue pill and the red pill. and says, if you take the blue pill, you can keep on living happily in your simulation down there. You'll be down there, and what you can see, and it looks real to you, looks like the real deal to you. But if you take the red pill, it's like your eyes will be open, and you'll see all the numbers, all the green numbers, and you'll see what's going on behind the scenes, what's causing it all, what's in control of it all. You'll see the matrix. Horrible illustration, but it's kind of, that's kind of what it's like. Chapters two and three, you're seeing the churches. It's not a simulation. It's for real. But, but, it, but in chapter four and following, you, my friend, have taken the red pill. And your eyes are now being opened to all the stuff that's moving above it and under it and inside it and through it that's invisible to the human eye. And so all of that is over these seven churches. All of that is explaining to them, here's why you're suffering, here's why you're persecuted, here's why there's war, here's why there's everything else, because there's this heavenly conflict going on and it drips down onto the earth all over the place. So that's how these tie together. Do you understand what I'm saying? Say yes or I'll repeat it all, okay? So just nod your head, let the lunatic keep going, all right? But uh, there we go. That's why there are seven churches. Also, making the case for a connection between the seven churches of Asia Minor and the rest of the book, this is interesting. I noticed that the word overcoming, I looked it up in my Greek concordance. Let's see how many times the word overcoming is overcome or overcoming is used. And in the letters to the seven churches, the word overcome, overcoming, you must overcome, to him who overcomes, I'll offer a crown. The word is used eight times. Guess how many times the word, the word is used in the rest of the book, in the apocalyptic part of it? Eight times. They are overcoming or not. They need to overcome. There's a blessing and a promise if they'll overcome. In the rest of the book, we see the heavenly stuff going on that gives them their problems and their challenges, and we see that what they need to do is 
overcome. It's a book about God is on his throne. He's allowing these things to happen. You must overcome. The church of Jesus Christ must overcome, and all the true believers will. So it's like this. First we see seven churches on earth. Then we go with John into the spirit, and we find out what's really causing it all, what's really driving it all, what's really happening with it all. Let's go to key key fact number four. Key fact number four is they, the seven churches, give us a primer. By the way, that's not primer. It's spelled the same. Primer's paint. Primer is what you squirt into the carburetor that won't start. Psh, psh, there, I primed it. It starts up. Uh, this is not primer. This is primer. What's a primer? A primer is a little short coverage of something, a little book that tells you, here's what you need to know about that. It's like cliff notes, all right? So they give us a primer. They give us the cliff notes on three kinds of churches, three broad categories of churches found in every era of church history. There are healthy churches. There are sick churches. And there are terminal, terminally ill churches. And we see each each of those in these seven. Three of them are healthy. Three of them are sick. One of them is terminally ill. It's dead. And in every era of church history, we can expect to find all of those. I don't know if they're always in that proportion. It doesn't say that. Sometimes maybe there's more healthy, but sometimes maybe there's more sick. Sometimes maybe there's more terminal. But we'll see all of these at any time in church history, especially as it pertains to persecution, standing, or fitting in. And in these letters, all of them, Dr. Jesus gets out his spiritual stethoscope and he diagnoses the health of church number one and he tells us. Church number two, he tells us. Church number three, he listens to their heartbeat and he tells us. So there's Jesus diagnosing this one's healthy, this one's ill, this one's terminal. You ought to learn from this. You ought to look at your church and assess your own strength and see what temptations are coming to your church so that you might stay in the healthy zone and not wind up in the sick or the terminal zone. So, all right, enough key facts about the churches. Let's jump in. The church in Ephesus. You have your Bible and start bringing your paper Bible all the time because it'll help you if you just glance down at what I'm talking about while we're talking about it. So to the church in Ephesus, I'm not going to read the whole section because it'll just take too long. But the church in Ephesus is, next slide please, is persecuted but lacking love. They're sick. Their church is sick. The church is only about 60 years old, and it's sick. It's not healthy. It's not terminal. It's sick. And the problem is, at work, some of them are giving in to the, I need to keep my job. I'll just play along with their worldly thing. I'll just go ahead and offer up some incense. I'll just go ahead to the idol temple and offer up some meat. I'll just go ahead and participate. I'll I'll get along. I'll be a team player. Some of them at work are doing that, and some of them by are pleasing the government and keeping the government off their backs by saying, oh, Caesar's Lord, all right? You know, I, I know it's not true, but I'm doing it. So this is, this, is what, this is what they're doing. Now, there's some good in Ephesus. Let's look at it. I'll put it up, Revelation 2.2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. That's pretty good. We'll take that. They're not terminal. They're just sick. They've got some good things. Here's what's good. They've got some works. They've got some toil. People are working in the children's ministry. That's the toil part of the church, right? You're supposed to laugh at that, all right? And the patient endurance part, that's putting up with the pastor's sermons, all right? But 
anyway, it's a lot of things. I know you have works. I know you have toil. I know you have patient endurance. But listen to this. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, and he says, you have works of faith. You have labor of love. You have patience of hope. So these people just had faith, love. I'm sorry. They just had works, labor, and patience. But all the faith and all the love and all the hope had seemed to go out of them. And they were just like grinding out service to keep their church running. Like that's how some of you serve in children's ministry, right? Like I hate this. If I didn't absolutely, they made me do this because my kids are in there. And if my kids are in there, I have to serve. So that's legit. I get it. But I hate it. All right. That's how they were about everything in their church life. And by the way, serving in kids ministry is wonderful. Right, Brittany? Amen. All right. Amen. Big applause right there. It's wonderful. You ought to all sign up. Especially if you put one in, you ought to help. Okay. But anyhow, but uh, they'd lost their faith. They'd lost their love. They lost their hope. And Revelation 2 verse 4 says as much. But I have this against you. You got some good things. You're not terminal. But here's what's bad. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love. The love you had at first. It ain't there no more. That's a sick church. Just grinding out the duties, keeping the programs going, having services, but the love is gone. Love for what? Well, you name it. Love for anything. Love for Christ. Love for the kingdom of God. Love for God's word. Love for souls. But specifically, and commentators all agree on this, the the way they really lost their love in that context is you lost your love for boldly witnessing to the world by refusing to compromise and standing firm with Christ. You're not showing love to the lost. You're not doing them any good. And you're not showing love to Christ and fidelity to him. And so you've lost the love you had at first that made you risk danger, that made you risk identification with those Christians, that made you risk being seen as an enemy of the emperor. You, you loved Christ so supremely, you didn't care. We'll hazard all. We're sticking with Jesus. And they lost that love. And that's bad because the church of Jesus Christ is strongest when it's clean, when it's different. Not weird different. You don't have to be different just to be different. Well, they wear blue shoes and we'll all wear red shoes. Not not that kind of, that's dumb. But different where they sin and where they're in error, we differ, right? So if, if they're breaking commandments, we break off with that. If they're spouting error, we break off from that. We're not different just to be different, but we're different to be holy unto the Lord. And where the church is clean and different and bold and separates from errors and separates from sins, there the church of Jesus Christ is healthy. But Jesus calls these people to repent. Repent. What's repent mean? Repent means you're going this way and I want you to turn 180 degrees and go the other way. You don't call somebody to repent unless there's something seriously bad. The word repent indicates to us it is seriously bad when a church is cold. It is seriously bad when people have lost their passion and their first love for Jesus Christ. So that's Ephesus. And the Spirit is saying to our church right now, because at the end of the Ephesian part, it says down in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So he's talking about Ephesus for Cornerstone Church in Joppa, Maryland. And we're supposed to have ears and we're supposed to hear it and realize, oh man, we don't want to be dead. 
Sorry, we don't want to be, we don't want to uh, lose our love. We don't want to lose yet and wind up in the dead category. We want to have works of faith. We want to have labor of love. We want to have patience of hope. We want to be standing apart, even if it's going to cost us. So have ears to hear, O church. Let's watch. Let's watch ourselves. Let's go to the church in Smyrna. In Smyrna. Oh, I hate the clock. That's one of the problems Jesus is going to identify. Your sermons are governed by the clock. It's bad. The church in Smyrna is persecuted but healthy. They are healthy. They're, they're all good and no bad. There's nothing bad said about them. Let's look, Revelation 2.9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. See, they're all persecuted. And because of their persecution, they're in poverty. They lost their jobs. They got booted out of the trade guild. They can't go to work anymore, and they're living in literal physical poverty because of their stand for the gospel, because of their public witness and identification with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I know. It hasn't slipped my notice. I know what's going on. I'm the one who stood when the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned. I stood and watched that happen. I know. And then he reminds them, by the way, the poverty is not real poverty. You're actually rich. You're rich with all every spiritual blessing found in Christ Jesus. You're actually the rich people on the planet, and those who kept their jobs are the ones in poverty. So you're rich. And, and I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. There were Jewish people who were faithful to the covenant and faithful to uh, Old Testament commands, and there were other Jews who were kind of siding up with Rome. Let's just get along with Rome. Let's do what Rome wants. Let's give in to Rome. And those were tending to say, and by the way, those Christians, you think they're part of us? Because initially Christianity was a sect of Judaism. You think they're part of us, and so you think they fit under the umbrella of the deal we have brokered with you, that if we get along a little bit, you won't persecute us, but we want you to know they're not part of us. And so they were like ratting out the Christians and saying, you ought to go after them. They're not part of us. They don't fit under our umbrella deal we brokered with you. So he says, I know how they're slandering you who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They were giving in to the imperial cult. They were giving in to the trade guild demands. But here's what Jesus says to the dear brothers and sisters at Smyrna. He says, Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. He's just telling you, look, you're about to suffer. There's a baptism of fire coming your way. I wonder what would happen in Cornerstone Church if, like, if Jesus appeared over here somewhere and said, Cornerstone, I want you all to know you're about to suffer. Don't fear. How many of you would be like, well, I might not come back next Sunday. No, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Well, what are we going to suffer? Here it is. Behold the devil. Ah, now we're, at, well, now we're in chapters four and following. We're seeing the unseen. Here's what's really going on. I'll give you a glimpse ahead. It's the devil. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Oh, no, it's Rome who did that with the help of those Jewish people who sided with Rome. No, it's the devil. He's behind it. And he's about to throw some of you in prison. Imagine if, if tomorrow, who should I pick on? I just happened to glance at Brittany. So, Brittany, imagine if you're in prison tomorrow. There's Emily. Imagine, why is it all girls I'm looking at? There's Emily. 
and put all the women in prison. <laughs> Emily's in jail tomorrow because she's standing with Christ. She did not deny his name. She would not say the words. She said, you can't put those Caesar words in my mouth. He is not God. There's one God. He's the Lord. I worship him and him only. And they say, all right, put your hands out. You're going to jail. He's about to throw some of you in prison. That you may be tested. He's only doing it because it's given unto him. And God has other purposes that the devil doesn't even imagine. And he's going to refine the church and purify the church. Always persecution purifies the church, right? Yeah. When the heat comes, the bugs run. Those that weren't really in the faith, they disappear. So don't fear it. It's that you may be tested. And it's only going to happen for 10 days, a short period of time that you have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So brothers and sisters of Cornerstone, this is a healthy church. They're persecuted, but they're healthy. Apparently, they're willing to go to jail. They're willing to be put to death rather than just say, okay, I'll burn a little incense into the idol. Rather than just say, okay, I know it isn't true, so I'll just say it, get along, Caesar's God. No, they were sticklers for truth. We could only say what is true. We will not say the words that are lies, even if it means death. How many of you really think like, yep, I would die rather than say those words that are lies? That's a strong church. That's a healthy church. They're strong in persecution. They stand in persecution. They don't hide their faithful witness in persecution. They're distinct in persecution. They're robust in persecution. They don't compromise in persecution. They don't participate and rationalize, and instead they get persecuted. They're bold, they're strong, they're forthright, but that's the kind of church that reaches people and attracts them to the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. A healthy church. Bless the Lord. There were and are healthy churches in every era of church history. And I have to tell you, I mean, I don't want to sound like, like I have some imagined estimation of our church, but I always think of this church as being healthy. I think you guys are healthy. So what this healthy church says to me is it's like a warning. There's what makes a church healthy. I think we're identified with that church more than the other. Let's make sure we stay there. Let's make sure we stand in that. Let's be that kind of a healthy church. Let's go on to the third church, the church in Pergamum. It is persecuted but compromising. It's sick. Look at Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. Now Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians, you're allowed to go to the market and buy that food and take it home and grill it and eat it. That's okay. But that's not what these people were doing. These people were going to the idol temple. They were going to the celebration. They were going to the, quote, worship, and they were eating as part of the worship, and that we must not do. And Paul made that clear, and that's what John's talking about. And Balak taught the sons of Israel, look, you can, you can just play along and get along. Don't make such a big deal out of meat. It's just a piece of meat. You know there's no idol. You know it really means nothing. Just say it in your heart, it means nothing. Go into the temple. Don't lose your job over that. Just get along. 
That's what Balak did to the people of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Like, look, it's just the body, Paul to the Corinthians. It's just the body. That's what they said. And he says, no, 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 your body is made for food, but it's not made for that. All right? Don't join your body to an immoral situation there. But there were people saying, we can get along with the idolatry. We can get along with the immorality. It's part of the temple worship. It's okay. You know better. It's just the body. It doesn't matter. Don't lose your job over this. So he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there. There were some actually in their church saying, you can say Caesar's God. Here's how. And the rationalization. We have a new way of interpreting the passages. We've done some new exegesis, and in light of recent discoveries, we have found out that actually you're allowed to go into the temple, and you're allowed to eat the meat that's being offered there, and you're allowed to involve yourself with temple prostitutes, and you're allowed to say Caesar is God, so you don't have to lose your job, you don't have to go to jail, you don't have to, and and we can just fit in with the world. There were some in the church in Pergamum who were saying such things. They were doing the teaching of Balaam. Now, what is the point? What was the church in, in Pergamum supposed to do? Hmm? What are they supposed to do with those people? Stop them. Zip it. Out the door. That's not welcome in here. You know, I always see these giants. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm cynical. I'm driving around and you see a church and their sign and it says, all are welcome. And I, I always think, like these Balaam teachers in Pergamon, would they be welcome? See, it's not all. There are times when a church has to say, there's church discipline. There's a time when a church has to say, that and you with that are not welcomed in here. And that's what they were expected to do. You're permitting these people. You're allowing these people. You're putting up with these people. And the elders of the church are supposed to say, wait a minute, I think I see a wolf. Wolves are outside. Sometimes churches nowadays, and it sounds nice, in the interest of like reaching everybody, they're saying, oh, we wish just everybody, all kinds of people. No, actually we don't. Because if they're all in here pretty soon, you don't have a healthy church anymore. You have a mess. All right? So Jesus has something against them because they have some people in their midst who are saying some bad things and they're not dealing with it. So if you don't deal with people who are spouting errors, you're going to have a sick church. And after a while, you're going to have a dead church. So we should learn from that. And then there's the church in Thyatira. It's persecuted but tolerant, it's sick. Look at what it says, Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you that you tolerate. See, they're tolerant. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, there wasn't someone actually named Jezebel in their church. Jezebel was picking up an idea from an Old Testament story. There was a Jezebel who led God's old covenant people into sin. And so Jesus is saying to to Thyatira, you have a woman like Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing. That's what they're always doing, seducing. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that they may draw men and women after themselves. They're seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Same thing. There was this Jezebel woman and she's teaching in the church. Look, you can keep your job. You know there's no such thing as an idol. There's only one God. You know that in your heart. So, you know, just get along. Just compromise a little bit. Just utter it under your breath. 
And Jesus Christ says, uh, I have something against you. You're, you're tolerant. Tolerance is one of the big words in our day, right? We're all supposed to be tolerant. But in the church of Jesus Christ, there are times and there are people with whom we are not supposed to be tolerant. We don't tolerate that in here. Right? There are things we don't tolerate. Say, well, you offend a lot of people if you kick Jezebel out. Well, it's what we got to do. I'm not implying there's a Jezebel here either, by the way. If there is, please talk to me afterward, all right? I don't know who she would be. But here was this Jezebel and immorality is coming into the church because of it. And let's go on to the fifth one, to the church in Sardius. We'll have to end with this one. <laughs> I thought I was going to cover a lot more this morning. It's the church in Sardius. They are persecuted but terminal. Revelation 3, 1b through 2a, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. That's like yesterday you were. You still have the reputation, but you're not. But you are dead. Imagine if Jesus Christ appeared in our church today and said, I want you all to know you're dead. You'd be able to hear a pin drop, right? Dead. Jesus says we're dead. Jesus said that his church, the letter went out to them. You're, you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It was a dead church, not a healthy church, not even a sick church. It was a dead church. All of the life had gone out of it. And in every part of church history, there are healthy churches, there are sick churches, there are dead churches, and the, the movement tends to go from healthy to sick to dead. Like, have I ever seen a dead church go back to healthy again? Not that I can think of. But churches and seminaries and Bible colleges and denominations are constantly going from healthy to dead, from healthy to dead, from healthy to dead. Like so many of the churches that used to preach the gospel, great denominations that were foundational in our nation are now themselves synagogues of Satan. They're just dead. They don't believe anything from the word of God anymore. They don't believe the gospel. They don't believe anything that we love and believe. They're just dead. There are plenty of dead churches. There are plenty of very alive churches, very healthy churches. And there are churches all along the spectrum. So I have to draw it to a close there. So jump down to observations for me, please. Would you, Jonathan? Thank you. Now just look at the number one. I want you to notice of seven persecuted, we didn't see them all yet, but of seven persecuted churches, three were healthy, three were sick, one was dead. Oh, cornerstone people, let's watch. Let's labor. Let's be careful that by the grace of God, we might be a healthy church. That means we need to be people who do not compromise. That means we need to be people who stand, so help me God, even if they say, well, you're going to jail. Even if they say, then you're going to die. Then we say, all right, then I'll be in glory. Right? Okay. Okay. Do your worst. It's my best. So let's be a church that stands. Amen. We got to pray. Stan needs to get up here and lead us in communion. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the scriptures. They make us wise unto salvation. Maybe some here in this room today, some who are hearing us from elsewhere, need salvation. They need to start there. Father, would you draw them to yourself right now? May they bow their knees and confess that Jesus is their Lord to your glory. May they turn to be true and faithful disciples of Jesus Christ and to receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the salvation that he purchased for them on the cross. 
men and women, boys and girls, pray to the Lord. Lord, please give me that salvation. Please, I'm a sinner. Please save me. And if we can help you to know Christ or to grow in Christ, there's a connect card in the chair in front of you. There's one under the 